we ready to get started? We've got 12.31. Thank you very much. It's good to be back. Thank you. It's been a really, really, really busy June. Um, and now that July's here, hopefully it won't be quite as busy. Um, but <clears throat> just a heads up, so we'll meet next week. The week after, we won't meet. I'll be down in Florida with my family on vacation, so... Um, Nobody, it's hard to find a fill-in, and we haven't taken a week off, at least in July, since we're meeting today. People asked if we're going to meet on the week of the 4th, so we're going to meet, yes, today, but we'll take off in two weeks, all right? So you go to fly to Hawaii, do whatever you're going to do then. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, we're just going to do that, that one week, so not next week, but the week after. I don't... Yeah, thank you for those of you that uh, sent really kind words. Um, my, my grandmother, we had her funeral yesterday. She passed away. To, uh, Friday would be her 91st birthday. And uh, so our birthdays are one day apart. Um, but she, that was my, I lost my grandmother on my other side this time last year. And this was my dad's mom. Um, but it was, it, was, it was good. If you're going to go... It's, I have, every time I was thinking of, when you read scripture, it talks about you'll be buried at a good old age and you'll see your descendants to the third and the fourth generation. And so grandma got to see uh, her you know, great grandkids came to visit her when she was in hospice while she was still coherent, still able to interact. And I got to see her. Um, I had to miss a meeting that I was supposed to be in in Western Carolina, but I went down to see her. And I got to be there and hold her hand and talk to her a little bit. And she was coherent. She was good. And then um, when she went downhill, it, it didn't take very long. And there wasn't a lot of suffering. So that's what you want. You know, if you're, when it's your time to go be with the Lord, you want to be surrounded and sent off well by people that love you. And so, um, and, and my dad preached her funeral yesterday and did a really good job and told funny stories and uh, just share about her life. So it was, it was, it was how it should be, you know, uh, this side of eternity. So thank you all for that, for the well wishes. Thank you for the birthday cake today and the cards. And uh, my birthday every year gets overshadowed by our country's birthday. So it's always nice when uh, people catch mine and acknowledge it. And yes, I will be like Moses when we started our study together in Exodus. I'll be 40 uh, this year. So. Um, yeah, um, <laughs> a good biblical number. So, uh, also one thing I want to notice too. Some of you may or may not know, but we have this summer we've revamped the the website for this ministry, Disciple Dojo. And so, if you go, there's a new page that we've done, um, and it's just discipledojo.org/donate. And it, you can go, and we have um, basically how you can support this ministry. We're really trying to press because what we want to do to, to keep this study going and the, the other outreach that we do with the ministry, the teaching, the online courses, which our new one is coming out hopefully by the end of this summer, uh, a totally revamped version of Bible for the Rest of Us. Um, all of that's free, and, but in order to do that, we're, trying, we're really trying to get the board and I are setting a goal of monthly supporters and so we have it by we're Disciple Dojo. So we have belt levels for supporters. So a white belt supporter is $10 a month. 
all the way up to, you know, black belt supporter, which is $100 a month, and then even beyond that, red belt supporter, which is $1,000 a month, uh, which I don't expect those, but you know what? God does the miraculous, so if you know anybody that's got some money and they'd like to get a nice little tax uh, kickback for it, we'd love for them to become a monthly dojo donor, or if you'd like to as well. If people donating just $10 a month is really huge, um, it helps uh, get me actually able to have a salary, and it also helps us then be able to build the resources to hire and to expand and to grow this ministry. So think about that, um, you know, uh, as they say, closed mouths don't get fed, so I'm opening my mouth on that one, and I'm not going to open it again for a while. So there's your monthly pitch. We are, <clears throat> oh, oh, and I want to thank on the podcast, because I record this every week, and I want to thank my friend Samuel Genus for coming and speaking last week, and being with you guys. He's a good dude. We've had some great discussions, and um, he's one of the local ministry people that I really respect and like to be able to sit down with and talk. And so I asked him, and uh, he said he would, and I was glad that you guys got to meet him. I, I want to continue, if I'm not able to be here, to, to, to help uh, get you guys in contact and exposed to other good teachers or people in the area that I look up to and respect. So I hope you had a good time with him. We're going to jump back to Deuteronomy, and we're getting we're 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 almost halfway through the book. In fact, next week will be exactly halfway through the book, and which is good because we're halfway through the year, so it's perfect timing. But Deuteronomy 15, what we're what is happening now? It's been a couple of weeks, so to recap is Moses again. He's basically restating Exodus and the laws in Exodus. And then some of the laws in Leviticus, some of the stuff in Numbers, but mainly Exodus, restating it to this generation that weren't even born when the Exodus happened or they were children. And so we're moving into a section of Deuteronomy where you're going to hear that this chapter and specifically in the next chapter, you're going to hear a lot of Passover themes because Passover is the event that gave birth to the nation of Israel as a nation when they became God's covenant people on a national scale. And so there's allusions back to Passover as Moses is starting to, to or, or ending, I should say, ending his life. And he's speaking to the people all gathered around. And I still, I, a month ago, I was where he actually said this, which was just so cool. Like, actually, I can picture right now him stay, saying it and seeing where everybody's camped at. And it's really neat. So I hope next year, if we take another group, that you guys will jump on board with that and you can actually go where he actually gave all of this because it's so cool seeing the entire promised land laid out before them. And he's giving these commands and he's saying, you know, you're about to go there and that land is amazing, but it's also, um, it's also holy in the sense that God, the land itself God has called you to go into to be his radiating source out to the world. And so there's a high level, there's a high responsibility for you as you enter into that land. And you're going to be, there are going to be specific peoples in that land that you're driving out. You're driving them out not because you're better than them. He's going to reiterate that everywhere in Deuteronomy. Not because God doesn't like Gentiles or God is somehow holds one race superior to the others or any of that nonsense that's gotten attached to this. But you're going to drive them out because the time for their punishment, for their sins, has been has been realized and now you are God's instrument for judging them and only them not all the peoples of that land but just the particular peoples of Canaan and so in doing that then the goal is for you to go in and to not 
do what they did in the past 400 years. Right? So over the past 400 years, the Canaanites became increasingly, increasingly, increasingly wicked to the point of being ripe for God's judgment. And God and God alone has the right to determine that. Israel did not determine that it was time for the Canaanites to be wiped out. They were not to be driven out because they weren't Israelites. That's never prescribed anywhere in Scripture. Um, all of these things, again, that people read into the text. No, you have to start from Genesis and remember Genesis 15 setting the mandate for all of this 400 years prior. And it was going to be God's judgment on the Canaanites for the sins of the Canaanites and His promise to Israel that if you do the things that the Canaanites are doing, you will become Canaanites in my eyes. You will be driven out of the land. So Israel's status as God's people is never taken for granted. It's never seen as just this immutable thing that can never be abandoned or can never be forfeited. No, it absolutely can be. And, and it is by Israel. Israel forfeits their, their calling in, in to be a light into the land. And God is going to send them into exile because of it. And there's a whole history, a tragic history of God's people uh, refusing to live by God's standards when they are after they received the blessings and, the, and, and all of the things that God promised them, not then walking in obedience. And so what God's doing is he's, he, Moses is reiterating to the people who are about to go into this land, who were babies when they came out of Egypt, or not even born, remember, you are going to live this way. So the first thing that he's going to talk about um, <clears throat> is last week they talked about some uh, the issue of food and eating and how you're going to eat because it had to do food and agriculture and worship and sex and fertility and all of these things were tied up together. They were intimately linked. And he was distinguishing them even down to their eating habits from the Canaanites and from the surrounding nations. And then this week, or, or this section then, he's going to say now, the other, or one of the other prominent features of life in the ancient Near East was this concept of being an Ebed. And we looked, if you were with us for the Exodus, uh, the year we were doing in Exodus, if not, you can go back on the podcast, on the YouTube video channel and catch it. We spent a week, before we got into Exodus 23, we spent a week talking about, or Exodus 21, yeah, 21, we spent a week talking about the Hebrew, the ancient Near East concept of Ebed. What is Ebed? Well, in some English translations, it's servant, in some it's slave. The truth is, neither of those words are good translations. Because both of those words have connotations that were foreign to the concept of Ebed in the ancient Near East. So slavery, we immediately think of colonial slavery, which was race-based, which was chattel slavery, which was based on kidnapping, human trafficking. Well, that was already, we've seen in the Exodus study, that was forbidden. Human trafficking was a capital crime in Israel. Every time you hear somebody say the Bible's pro-slavery, please say, ask them, will you read Exodus? Will you realize that slave trading... Human trafficking was one of the capital crimes in Israel. And you would be put to death for doing it. So that immediately eliminates the entire transatlantic slave trade from even remotely being a biblical concept. Just flat out. Everybody who used the Bible to approve and condone slavery was ripping it out of Scripture and were, were actually doing what in Israel's Scripture would have been a capital offense. Every single one of them. So immediately, that, the word slavery in our English definition is not a great translation for this concept. But servant is also not a great translation because servant implies somebody who's just hired and you still retain your freedom. You know, I work as a servant, as a butler, as a maid, something like that. That's not the case either because Evans did in fact 
give their life, sell their life, or if they were captured in battle, instead of losing their life, it became uh, the, the, the property of the person who they were under. So there was that element of what we would call slavery, but it wasn't chattel race-based and it didn't have to do with human trafficking. So there's just not a great word for it. So sometimes slave, sometimes servant, context, it just depends on what the context is. I just use the Hebrew word ebed, um, E-B-E-D. It's just, that's about, to me, it just avoids a lot of the connotations that later words put onto it when we're reading. But this is the law, the first, uh, the, after the food laws now, Moses is going to tell the Israelites, hey, this is how you are going to treat the people in your society at the lower rungs. And everything from the Evid, the, the slave servants, to the poor, the widows, the immigrants, this is going to be the first thing that God addresses through Moses to his people as he's starting to reiterate these laws for them. So he puts this near the front in terms of who they are and who they are to be. And so this chapter is incredibly challenging um, and convicting for many of us today. And frankly, the church needs to reread Exodus 15 and really get a grip on the spirit of what this law, these laws are about. Because when you read these, the Spirit of God comes through loud and clear, and the attitude of God towards the poor, the widow, the immigrant, um, the, the, the lowest of society, could not be more clear than it is in this chapter. And this chapter would have a strong rebuke for many in the church today, just as the chapter on sexuality and other stuff would have a strong rebuke on many on the opposite side of the theological spectrum in the church today. So the Bible is the Bible. The Bible hits both. The Bible is as a equal opportunity offender when it comes to our political sensibilities, which is why I like it because it challenges us all. So verse chapter 15 says, "At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts." Now, in the other laws that we looked at before. Seven years was the period that you were, you were allowed to work the land. And then in the seventh year, you were to leave the land. Let the land remain fallow. Let, let nature come back and kind of reclaim, give the land a Sabbath year rest. So that year then would coincide with this, what they're talking about as well. When the land is getting rest, you're also to cancel the debts that are owed. And so it was like a, a kind of a reset every seven years. It goes on and says, this is how it's to be done. Every creditor shall, and NIV says cancel the loan he has made, but it, literally it says release the hand. Um, it means basically if I give somebody a loan, I take something as collateral to make sure that they're going to repay me. So I may take like something that's very special to them. And that's the thing that you hold with the hand. That's, that's what I'm, you know, so it, the laws would say things like, don't do it, it, don't take somebody's garment, and don't take the top half of a millstone set, because then they, they don't have anything to cover themselves with, and they can't work. But you can take other stuff as a pledge for a loan. Well, this is said every seven years, you're going to release that. Give back whatever pledge that you took. Now there's debate, scholars say, does this mean you forgive the loan entirely? Others say, no, you just give back the collateral. And, and they, can, they still will repay you in the next seven-year cycle, but, but you're giving back the collateral you were keeping. I don't know. There's debate. It could go either way. But the spirit of the thing is one of generosity. 
So it says, um, this is how it to be done. Every creditor shall cancel the loan he has made to his fellow Israelite. He shall not require payment from his fellow Israelite or brother because the Lord's time for canceling debt has been proclaimed. You may require payment from a foreigner, but you must cancel any debt your brother owes you. So the idea, the picture is Israel is going to be into the, in the land. Israel is going to take care of the people in Israel. Now they're going to be foreigners, and this is not meaning ethnic foreigners. This is used, the foreigners is referring to traders, others who are coming in, people who are not living in Israel, but who come through for trade, who come through um, for commerce. That's the idea of these foreigners. The, the other foreigners are the ones who are actually part of Israel, people like Caleb, people like Ruth. They are joined to Israel, so they're considered part. They're, they're, they're to be treated exactly like all the other Israelites. This has to do not with immigrants. This has to do with foreigners. People who are just in town doing business, in the country doing business, or passing through. Not people who have come and entered into the covenant people of Israel. They're to be treated the same, as Leviticus made clear. So it says, you must cancel any debt your brother owes you, however, and verse 4, however, there should be no poor among you. For in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, He will richly bless you if only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I'm giving you today. This is the ideal. This is what God's saying. There shouldn't be any poor Israelites. There may be poor from other countries who come, who seek asylum, who seek sanctuary like Joseph had to do down in Egypt. There may be people who are poor for a time, but there, if, if, and that's the key, if you're following my decrees, what has God been promising this whole time? I'll make sure your crops are abundant. I'll make sure you always have rain. I'll make sure your vines are full and ripe. I'll make sure you have what you need if you are keeping my covenant. This is a covenant treaty promise. This is a covenant treaty document. These are the stipulations of the covenant. And so the suzerain is telling the vassal, you keep your end, I'll keep my end. And if I keep my end, there won't be any poor among you. So you keep your end, there won't be any poor among you. And so that's what he sets as the ideal. For the Lord, verse 6, for the Lord your God will bless you as He has promised. And you will lend to many nations, but will borrow from none. You will rule over many nations, but none will rule over you. He's saying if you are to my people, what's the point of Israel? To be a light out to the nations. All the nations, when they look to Israel, what they should see are people who are in covenant with a God who make sure that their needs are met and they make sure that they're faithful to that God. And if that's aligned, then that nation will be blessed and the other nations will look to them just as Israel looked to Egypt way back before they were ever enslaved. As they looked and, and there was famine, and so Joseph and or yeah, the, Joseph and his brothers they go down to Egypt. Joseph forcibly, but his brothers voluntarily later go down to Egypt. Why? To borrow. Why? Because there was famine. Why was Egypt the place to go? Because Joseph had been elevated in Joseph's favor. The promise of Abraham, you will be a blessing. Those who bless you, I will bless. Had manifest in Egypt because God had raised Joseph up. So that is to be the pattern for Israel if, if they follow God's commands. This has nothing to do, by the way, later views. People have used this as like, oh, this is why Jews take over the money everywhere they go. And they lend to foreigners, but they don't charge interest to each other. Da, da, da. That's all later, later, later additions. This was talking about theocratic Israel in the land of Canaan. 
That's what this was talking about. How this applies later to the Jewish people in exile would unfold in different ways among different communities. But that's what this verse is talking about. Israel is to be this way because they are following God. Not because they're trying to build their own wealth. So that's how this gets misused and twisted. So then, verse 7, If there is a poor man among your brothers in any of the towns of the land that the Lord your God is giving you, so the ideal there shouldn't be, but if there is, which means you're not being obedient as a nation, if there is, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your brother. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend him whatever he needs. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. And here's the thought that you could think when you'd see somebody who's, uh, who's poor among you. Um, the seventh year, the year for canceling debts, is near. So that's what he doesn't want you to think. God said every seven years you're going to release. So what happens? A, a poor person comes to you in the sixth year and, and is going to sell themselves as a servant, as an Evid, into your service. Well, you know in your head, well, I'm not going to get seven years worth of work out of this person because I've got to release him next year. So you would be tempted to not enlist them, to turn them away. God says don't do that. God says do not do that. Look, He makes it emphatic. Uh, he says, uh, be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. Uh, then after He says it, so that you do not show ill will toward your needy brother and give him nothing. He may then appeal to the Lord against you, and you will be found guilty of sin. You will be found guilty of sin if you try to do what in the world's eyes is a smart business decision. It's a smart business decision if you know this debt's going to be released or canceled next year. It's a smart business decision to wait, let the seventh year run its course, then let the person sell themselves into your service, because then you get seven years of their work. That's, a, that's good business. That's sin in God's economy. So God's desire runs contrary to what the world would say is good business sense. But God is not interested in good business sense from a worldly perspective. Why? Because He's the one that's providing for Israel's needs. So they don't need to rely on, quote, good business sense in order to get ahead. They need to rely on God to get ahead. It's the principle behind the Sabbath. Sabbath makes no sense in business. It, it's contrary to everything in business to just shut down and not work for a whole day. But Israel was called to do just that. Why? Because it would mean that they have to trust God to make up that whole day of work that they lose. And that's the point. That's what God wants them relying on Him, not on their own ingenuity. So, you will be found guilty of sin if you do that. Verse 10, give generously to him and do not withhold a grudging, or do not or do so without a grudging heart. Then, because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open handed towards your brothers and towards the poor and needy in the land, whether those are from Israel or, as it says in the second one, those are the ones who are coming from other lands. Coming to seek a better life. Coming to seek a piece of the Hebrew dream, as you'd say. Right? They're coming to them. God's, God's message to them, ooh, 
it would, it would make some people bristle. But his message to them is, give generously. Give generously to them and trust that you giving to them is a reflection of you giving to me and I'll make up the difference. Now, should this be how a government runs its borders? Debate that all day. And you're free to draw different conclusions on that. But for a Christian, this is the ethic of God's kingdom. Now, what does that mean for how we vote? Which party? All that secondary. Figure it out on your own. The underlying spirit of the law, the spirit of what God's saying is, do not be tight-fisted. Do not be hard-hearted. Our first response as a Christian when we see someone in need, our first response, our inward response, should be, how can I help this person? How can I be generous? Now, that may not be our full response because we may need to do stuff to not enable them. We may need to give them a hand up, not a hand out. All the things that the Scripture that we've talked about over this past couple of years as we've walked through God's law and how He looks with the poor with the law of gleaning, right? You give them opportunity, not just a handout. All that comes into play. Sure, absolutely. And there's room to discuss and, and to really reflect on that. But what I'm talking about is our, our inward, initial, emotional response should be in line with God's heart and God's heart is always for the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the alien. And that's, he, he gets really ticked off when his people oppress those people more than anybody else. More than anybody else. You, you see it in the pages of Scripture. It's everywhere in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So we, as a people, as a church, forget we as a nation, we as a church have to be known as people who live because it's the same God. We're just in the new covenant. So we're not doing this from a, a theocratic, ethnic-based, or not ethnic, excuse me, a theocratic, geographic-based country, which is what God's people were in the old covenant. We're doing it from a global, no borders, no flags, united body of Christ in the world. And so how we do this, how we enact this, will look differently. But our, our heart, our heart, our spirit should reflect God's for the poor. And so then he goes on, we'll finish uh, the rest of the chapter, builds on, he says, if a fellow Hebrew, a man or a woman, sells himself to you and serves you six years, in the seventh year you must let him go free. And when you release him, do not send him away empty-handed. Supply him liberally. And, and the literal phrasing of this is, is garland his neck or, or hang on him. Uh, all of these things, meaning like the images hanging like bags, jars of wine and bags of oil, you know, just loading him up like you'd load up an animal and sending him out. Supply him liberally from your flock and your threshing floor and your wine press. Give to him as the Lord your God has blessed you. Good Lord, if people did that, this world would be transformed. If the church, if just the church did that, our society would transform literally overnight. Average amount of giving of Christians, evangelical Christians, in America is 3%. That's the average. 3%. God says, no, give to Him as the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. That's why I give you this command today. But, and this is what he mentioned in Exodus 21, because in the ancient world, sometimes being a servant, being an ebid, was actually a pretty sweet deal 
if you were in a good household. This is where it differs from slavery. Is It was actually, people would willingly go into this. There's a powerful family. He's good. They treat their servants well. They pay them. They provide for their needs. They give protection. They, I want to be part of this household. And it's much like uh, samurai would do in Japan. They would pledge themselves to a feudal lord. They would pledge themselves to a house, to a daimyo, to someone, and they would basically say, my life is yours. I am your faithful retainer. That's, this is a, in, throughout history, you see this in different ways. But if that's the case, if the person wants to, then if your servant says to you, I don't want to leave you because he loves you and your family and is well off with you, then take an awl, push it through his earlobe into the doorframe, and he will become your servant for life. Do the same for your maidservant. So this would be a way of marking, is put a piercing of the ear with the awl, and then that would be a symbol that this person their obedience, their ear, their hearing, their service is bound to this household. That was the symbolism behind puncturing the ear, piercing the ear on the doorframe. In verse 18, do not consider it a hardship to set your servant free because his service to you these six years has been worth twice as much as that of a hired hand. And the Lord your God will bless you in everything you do. And then it's going to move on now. We're not going to look at this part because we're out of time and it also bleeds into the next section. But these Passover themes you've been hearing, Hebrews, um, servants, now it's going to talk about firstborn and blood, all of these themes from the Passover. And then chapter 16 is going to actually talk about the Passover as well as the other feasts that Israel is going to celebrate. So it's moving that way. But the cornerstone of Israel's identity was you were slaves now you're free. You were in bondage. Now you're free and you're blessed with wealth. So you do that to everyone you meet. Because that's who you are. That's what God calls Israel to be. That's what God calls the church to be. There's a reason Jesus chose the Exodus Passover image as the entire basis of the New Covenant. The entire basis of salvation is patterned around the Exodus. So our mandate, our calling, our challenge is exactly the same. And if we hear the message of Exodus, of Deuteronomy 15, then that will radically transform how we approach so many things in society. Whether it's immigration, whether it's uh, welfare issues, whether it's national security, whether it's um, incentive programs, whether, whatever it is. And that doesn't mean you're going to go one way or the other. Because let me tell you something. As you've, you, if you know me and know, you know I have... I have a bone to pick with both sides of the political spectrum because they both lean one way or the other and lose the biblical balance. The biblical balance will challenge any of our worldly allegiances and our worldly political ideologies. But that's the cool thing about it. That's the best thing about being God's people is we belong to the heavenly party. And the heavenly party is the one that wins. And that's who our first allegiance is to. Uh, so if we're doing that, God's going to watch our back as a people, as a nation, as a church. Um, but it's a challenge. And it's a challenge that we have to end for now because it's time to go. There's some amazing desserts left here. These are all homemade, handmade donuts I heard. So I'm going to actually take some, whichever you guys don't take. So get them before I do. Uh, but have a great week. Let people know next week we will meet. The week after that, we will not. See you then.